Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, I'm excited to welcome Lou Whiteman back on the show to take a look at Palantir's recent earnings. Lou, how's it going? Going well. Good to see you, Nick. Yeah, gr- great to have you here back on the show. We've talked about Palantir here in the past. I think this is the first show we're doing, kind of focusing specifically on on this company. We, we I had you on a couple weeks ago. We talked about the uh, entertainment that we can get from Tesla earnings calls. There is some some back end relationship between Palantir, whose chairman is Peter Thiel, and then uh, the the uh, the Tesla CEO and former chairman uh, Elon Musk. What did you make of this this earnings call, man? This it's uh, Palantir is a unique company. They are, and uh, you know what? It, 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 they own that, which which I respect. But yeah, no, it was a it was a fun earnings call. They do for people who didn't listen in. They have uh, they have people submit questions. There's no live back and forth with analysts, and it's brilliant because it really gives them a chance to communicate as they wish and maybe not communicate what they wish. But it, but it makes for a really fun call, and you know, as issues or, or questions as simple as. What's Palantir, uh, Palantir do? Which I, was one that you pulled out that I thought was great, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, they take this out of the Tesla playbook, where uh, yeah, they they take uh, submissions from from investors online, and then at least for the the first part of the call, I would say most of the call, uh, the Q and A portion is spent answering those questions, having the IR executives read that out. Yeah, one of those one of the things we struggled with uh, here, Lou, is trying to figure out all right, what exactly does Palantir do? We had a whole episode where we talked about these highly classified businesses. Sometimes everything's kind of behind a wall. It's hard to figure out what's going on, what exactly uh, the nature of these programs are. And it seems like some analysts are, are having the same uh, problem uh, because there was a question we got on the earnings call. Uh, says, are there plans for the company to increase its PR presence to increase awareness of its business model, which may lead to increased utilization of Palantir's various software platforms? We got a an answer from the chief operating officer, uh, Shyam Sankar, and, uh, and I don't think it was super satisfying for those who are trying to figure out what the business is all about. Uh, they say, I can't really tell you why some people don't know or understand what we do. I can tell you about the people who do know, though. It's the special operator uh, who chased down a car uh, to give him a hug. It's the civil servants who work tirelessly to deliver vaccines in the U.S. and the U.K. It's the French government as they race to prevent bombs from exploding on the eve of Macron's election. It's the German police who caught the suicide bombers in time, the supply chain operators of the World Food Program tackling COVID's escalating impact of global poverty and hunger, the factory workers on the assembly lines from Toulouse to Detroit. So that's an answer. That's not really an exact answer. What is your understanding of what Palantir does and where they fit in other than being like sneaky spy software people? So yeah, so 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 the big picture is this is a data analytics company. They bring order to data and they do it with AI. They do it with a human intelligence because I you know, I mean humans are better at sorting through data than machines, but they do it with the speed and the and the just the total volume of a machine. So it's it's that human level intelligence at the volume of machines. It allows them to do amazing things. Uh, most notably, they helped the Pentagon find Osama bin Laden, helped uh, tr- figure out that Bernie Madoff wasn't on the up and up. Uh, it is the uh, 
it is a special sauce. It's AI that helps sort through mountains and mountains of data and find things that uh, both a human on its own, on his or her own, or a lesser AI is going to miss. That, in a nutshell, is what they do. But uh, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. They, they describe their culture as an artist's colony, so very, uh, very eccentric, you would say. And you know, maybe fits the Peter Thiel ethos. You know, he has his book Zero to One. I think it's one of the best investing books out there. But it talks about you have to be different to achieve something different. They're certainly being very different um, from other folks in the uh, certainly in the government services industry. Maybe maybe other companies um, in general. When we look at the numbers from the earnings report, what the company is giving us as far as performance of the business, what stood out to you uh, from earnings? Sure, sure. So, so start on a very high level. It was a good, very good quarter this recent quarter. And we should note, they only went public last, late last year. So this is still, it's an 18-year-old company, but it's relatively new to the public markets. Uh, anyway, they earned $0.04 cents per share on revenue of $375 million. That easily topped estimates on revenue. $353 million was the estimate. And uh, it was a penny ahead on uh, analyst expectations. Revenue was up an eye-popping 49% year over year. And um, adjusted operating margin topped 30% for the third straight quarter. So the biz, I mean, this is a good, solid business. And, um, you know, we'll talk about it later, but sort of I think the heart of the the question of uh, what does Palantir do, why don't analysts get it, is there is sort of a, a market disconnect right now going on with, you know, the strength of the business versus the strength of the stock. And, um, it's hard to get by, but look, they are they are forecasting great things. Uh, they had a, almost a three to one book to bill ratio, which means they're bringing in three times the business they're billing out. That is fantastic. They had twenty new commercial customers in the quarter. Uh, many of those, to be honest, they they did invest in. So maybe there's a bit of an asterisk there, but that is growth and commercial side growth, as we'll talk about soon, is key to the bull case here. Uh, most impressive, they 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 don't really give guidance, but they said they are confidence 30 confident of 30 percent annual revenue growth for each of the next five years so we're talking about growing the business from just over a billion on a run analyzed run rate to a 3.5 to 4 billion dollar company in a matter of five years 2026 uh that's as an investor you got to like that right i mean they are definitely going in the right direction yeah the big question for me and you know you might have might have uh, might may or may not have deep thoughts on this, Lou. But just why now? You mentioned this is a company that's been around for for a number of years. They were involved in the Osama bin Laden, uh, uh, you know, capture and and uh, uh, a number of years ago. And so this company that's been around for a while. Now we're seeing this incredible growth, forecasting lots of growth into the future. What is your perception of you know the corner they've turned here, or, or why now? And I, I should know. I mean, this is perception because, as we discussed from the top, this isn't a company that really likes to spell out all of its thoughts uh, to the markets. But look, they were—they only went public last year. That coincided with a real push on the commercial side. They have mostly been a government contractor. I think what we're seeing here is kind of part of their evolution into. If hopefully a more diversified contractor serving both government and commercial customers to kind of justify a a a strong public listing. I mean, 
you know, I mean, they've been around for 18 years and they are only only now a $1 billion company, mostly defense. That's going to trade at a different valuation than a company that can really attack the um, the commercial market. So, and, you know, we can get into that in a second as far as where they are in that. But I, but I think that this kind of the PR push, the going public, the commercial, this is all about turning it into from a niche government contractor to a more mainstream data analytics company. Right. That's that leap. You know, maybe if you think about it, uh, there's a couple examples in autonomy, right, where you had the DARPA program that was about autonomous vehicles. And now you have, you know, uh, lots of companies trying to launch that in a commercial sense. If you look at iRobot that makes, uh, you know, the robot vacuums, the early history of that company was they were a robotic minesweeper uh, that you obviously you don't want people to be going around walking through the minefield tracking for mines. And so that was the early development of that technology. Maybe this is another example of technology kind of developed in the test tube of the military that now you can open up the floodgates. And, uh, and and unleash it out onto uh, you know the commercial world. One thing you mentioned about uh, Lou, so so some of the the growth in revenue we're seeing, I think they said it's only one percent of their growth in revenue, but it's a huge chunk of their total contract volume is coming from these smaller companies. They call them day zero companies that they're investing in. What can you tell us about what they're doing here? And obviously, there's some risk. Yeah, well, yeah, no, they are investing in, in, in a, partially through the SPACs. Uh, they are investing in companies that they see promise in, and they are also finding customers that way. Which is, you know, I mean, you can't do it forever, but it, you know, it, it's hard to, to, um, to, to knock the strategy. I mean, and let's talk about a little because I think this gets back to that initial, you know, what is Palantir, and the question was, why don't analysts get it? You know, which uh, is an interesting thing to say. Uh, this is a company, as we said, this is most of their most of their history has been on the defense side. Right now, it's almost a $50 billion market cap on a billion dollars run rate of sales. So a, a quite rich price the sales on today. Even if you go forward with that uh, 30% growth over five years, we're still talking you know, 12 to 15 times projected 2026 sales, which is honestly, defense contractors mostly are less than two times sales. It's just out of this world for the defense. So this is part of this process where they need to become a commercial company. And while they're making progress here, and like with the, these day zero companies, they are they are being innovative in how they're going to do it. There was nothing in this quarter to suggest that the, the profile of this company is going to change anytime soon. Government was 61% of total revenue in the quarter, and it is growing faster. Governor, government grew by about 66%, commercial grew about 28%. By comparison, and it's hard to get a perfect comparison, but Snowflake, which is a commercial company, similar size revenue, they grew revenue by 110%. So it is not growing as fast as Snowflake and it and on the commercial side. And it is still, you know, I mean, if government's a bigger part of the pie and it's the side that's growing faster, it is really hard quickly to transition yourself into a commercial vendor. I think a lot of kind of, I don't know, the angst, I guess, in that question was, is why don't analysts get the commercial? And I think that's the better answer to that question right now is that, you know, commercial is still the area of promise, but not the area that is the bulk of the business. Uh, these day zero companies, initiatives like that, they've partnered with IBM to try and sell the software, which, you know, kind of will cut margins, but should hopefully do help with growth. This is these are ways where they are trying to transform themselves into the more commercial minded company that arguably could justify a higher valuation long term. Yeah, they, they talked about hiring a significant number of, of sales staff, obviously going out to, to sell uh, to, to more, you know, a different, more varied group of customers. I will say um, 
for any company that this does make me a little, you know, all right, we're we're kind of having a venture capital arm of our business that's spinning up, um, that's spinning up uh, customers for us. I will say though, it makes me feel a little bit better when you got Peter Thiel, one of the best venture capitalists ever, as the chairman of the board. If there's anybody that's going to pick winners um, and, and have, a, have a pretty high hit rate there, I, I think he's one of them. We'll have yeah. to see. Um, and they have the cash. I don't think there's a downside, but I also don't think that this solves their, you know, I mean, this isn't, this isn't where they're going to have to go to. to I mean, it, it looked really good on the customer acquisition numbers. It's not going to drive revenue and really transform the business, just the nature of these these customers. Yeah. So, so really uh, questions about, you know, how quickly they can continue to grow this this commercial side. How do these bets on smaller companies work out? You mentioned the cash pile, Lou, and that's the other... Thing that's grabbing headlines here is how they're spending that cash pile. So the company purchased fifty million dollars in one hundred ounce gold bars. They said in their their August twelfth earnings statement, they said it will be the purchase will be kept in a secure third party facility located in the northeastern United States, and the company will be able to take possession of the gold bars at any time with reasonable notice. They've talked about this being insurance against a black swan event. Palantir is the the eye in the sky that's you know helping fund. You know, or, or not not fun, but helping uh, you know support the operations of you know people like the, you know the CIA and the NSA. What do you make of this group in particular buying fifty million dollars in gold bars? That is certainly the headline, right? The so-called Skynet, the company that has the AI capable of predicting the future, is buying gold. <laughs> you know, that's um, I, I I don't know what to make it. I think it's a great way to get publicity. I can't imagine a lot of at least U.S. government or large corporate customers saying we want to pay in gold. So it feels more like a publicity thing. Maybe if foreign government sales, it may come in handy. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it, it definitely catches the eye. Maybe they know something we don't. But I, I, I really, I have a hard time changing my view of the business based on the fact that they bought gold. It's just a, it's just a real fun thing to watch, see exactly what they have planned. Yeah, for me, it's well a couple things. Well, for me, it partially it's a fifty million dollar marketing expense line item. You can think of it that way because me and you were talking about it. CNBC's talking about it. Um, they're writing it up on Bloomberg, all, all these other places. And you know, you, I don't know if you could get that level of coverage across the board in the financial media with just a fifty million dollar ad buy. And you certainly have an asset left on on the back end here with the gold purchase that you wouldn't have had if you just went and, and spent it on ads. There, there's that. Yeah, do you think it's it's realistic that you know, because they've talked about you know customers have the ability to pay with cryptocurrency, but nobody's paid. They're they're encouraging customers uh, reportedly to pay with gold, but the people who would realistically want to have untraceable payments are the people that Palantir has said they will not service. Right? These would yeah. be potentially hostile groups and groups that would want to cover up their operations. I don't think that the U.S. government wants to cover up that they're a customer of Palantir. No, no. I mean, hopefully not. I mean, there was a high-profile customer we won't name who uh, was a customer, but it turned out that they were using the software to spy on employees and not make better lending decisions. So, they, I mean, but that was a few years ago in the past. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, you know, it, it's funny not to be too tongue-in-cheek, but um, it's hard to imagine a big customer actually piling gold into a truck and driving it to Palantir headquarters. So probably what you would have is some sort of paper that represents an amount of gold. So that which you know used to be the US dollar. So maybe, maybe they're just trying to get us back to the gold standard. But I, I I tend to think you're right. That's $50 million of publicity that they also have an asset in the bank on. And we'll see. We'll see what else they do with it. I, 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 I'd be surprised if it's much. 
Yeah, I, I choose to take the publicity angle on this because if you take the they're predicting World War Three angle here, like that's I don't want to predict that future. So I'm going to choose the publicity the publicity angle. So Lou, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, when you look at Palantir, it's kind of tough to put a thumb on. And in some perspectives, you want to put it in the bucket of government services contractors, and others you want to put it in this bucket with you know your Amazons and your Snowflakes and your Microsoft as this transformational cloud software business. You know, about a year ago, we did a, a defense stocks basket, which was, you know, some of these traditional companies. When you look at how Palantir is traded compared to, to some of those other companies, what are your thoughts on where Palantir fits in the bucket? And, you know, uh, it has different strategies for investors to uh, kind of get into these trends. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not to duck the question, but this is a real hard one because I the, the, the business is fantastic. So it, there is in my mind, though, a disconnect between the business and the stock, and it, it's hard to say. It, it's hard to know how long that goes on or, or how quickly they grow out of it. One thing I do believe is is that if they cannot get the commercial up and running the way they hope to, the valuation is not sustainable over time. I there is just you know governments has cost plus contracts. There is only so much business. If you talk to Pentagon people about Palantir, they both love the co the company. They love the software when it's needed, but that when it's needed is important because it is expensive, it is cumbersome, it is a huge install, and frankly, it it it's best used not universally, but when it's needed. So you know, I mean, I do think there are limits on the government side, and I think the commercial side they're going to run into some of those same things. So yeah, last December, I actually put together a separate basket that was instead of Palantir by these three defense IT firms. And, you know, I was thinking five years for the record so far, I have not been right. Uh, my basket is losing to Palantir for less than 1% on average. If you throw in dividends, total return, I think I'm up, but uh, you know, whatever, we're very early in a five-year process. But the thing that struck me when I was looking at that this morning is, is that Palantir, for all of its volatility, has basically gone nowhere in a long time. Now, it has swung. It's been, at, at various points in time this year, it's been up 60% for the year. It was down as much as 25%, wild swings. But for the year, it is actually losing to the S&P 500 by almost nine percentage points. And it's basically, if you take out all that noise, it's a, it's a flat line. And I wonder... This company, these products, they're too good for it just to fall off a cliff. And I, it's hard to imagine a catalyst where it just, you know, crash, it's done, you know. But it's also hard to see that catalyst to, to get a jump higher. And I, I wonder if, I, I think one of two things is going to happen. Either they are going to surprise me with the way they can grow the commercial. And I think, honestly, probably surprise themselves because I think it's going to be much more than that 30% if to really see the stock take off. Or this could just be a flat stock for a while while it slowly grows into its valuation. And looking at what it's done last year, I, I, I think, I mean, the good news is that's not the worst downside. You know, I, I really, it's hard to imagine this company just ceasing to exist. But uh, I do question whether it can be a market-beating investment given its current valuation and the, the, the growth that's baked in and the challenges it might Fine, growing quickly. So I, I, it was. It really surprised me. Its performance versus the S and P five hundred for the year, and I wonder if that isn't telling of 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 what we have. You know, maybe not for the long, long term, but for for the next few years, foreseeable future. All right. Certainly, some execution to live up uh, to that valuation. So, Lou, you mentioned that that basket. Just just 
for completion sake, could you what, what were the the companies that was on that that list of uh, of three IT services firms? It was uh, Booz Allen Hamilton BAH, which to be honest has been the real clunker for me. But and then uh, I believe it was SAIC and uh, Le- which SAIC and uh, Litos Holdings LDOS. Excellent. I think, and we, we've talked about those in the past. I'll try to drop some links to, to episodes where we've talked about um, some of those companies. So, so I think uh, any last thoughts on Palantir before we uh, we move on to our next topic? Again, I think just uh, you know back to that original thing. Why doesn't the mark? Why don't understand analysts understand? I think it's an open debate whether or not analysts understand it better than retail, or if retail understands it better than analysts. Because a lot of you know defense people like me are are looking at it through that spectrum. We could be wrong, and we could be missing it. But I think, as an individual investor, you you should at least be mindful that it, that could be what they are too. And as I say, the stock could readjust over time. Yeah, it's that rule breaker. Uh, is it a rule breaker or is it a faker? We're going to find out uh, at some time in the, these next uh, you know quarters and years. And the big thing you're going to be watching is how quickly can they grow that commercial business and sustain that growth over time. Um, so. We've talked about defense a lot um, today, Lou, in the context of Palantir, maybe zooming out a little bit. The headline story uh, everywhere is what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, really tragic scene uh, of, of, of what's going on there. Uh, when you put what's going on there in the context of, of what it means for defense more broadly, do you have any high-level thoughts or context to give us? Yeah. I mean, as you say, it's it's so hard to watch. It's hard to really make it into a stock story, but these are stocks and they move on. I do think for big defense, it is mostly a distraction right now. I mean, it could be a distraction that causes some disruption. I, I'm pretty sure we're going to see hearings. I think it's going to distract Congress, so we could see delays on the budget. That's less clarity than we hope. Uh, that could be some resignations. There could be some shuffling. There could be some shuffling in the budget because of it. So I, I don't think the big picture really alters on this, but I do think it could cause choppiness up ahead. Uh, You know, part of leaving Afghanistan is part of a broader trend towards a shift in focus towards what the Pentagon calls great power competition. Uh, That's mostly China and Russia. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, I guess, with Afghanistan, we're kind of sucked back in. And yeah, maybe that means more near-term spending on munitions versus great power R&D, which the companies would definitely prefer the R&D. It's higher margin, more turnaround. Um, But it's hard to imagine a world where we stop focusing on Russia and China. And so I do think the R&D would be sustained. If anything, you know, there was about $9 billion in the fiscal 2022 Pentagon budget to support the Afghan army. Uh, That's presumably off the table. That does give some wiggle. That's not enough really to kind of shift views on on, uh, any one stock, but uh, there is some wiggle room now. I think long-term, the thesis prior to this on all these companies remains the same, but it certainly doesn't help clarity as far as when things get done and what the budget in the next year or two looks like. Yeah, it is kind of an interesting, you know, history rhymes a little bit. There was the the Vietnam, you know, uh, evacuation that was, you know, centered around Russia and uh, and you know uh, some of the things going on there. Now we have this, this great power focus. Whenever I hear great power, I just translate that to Cold War in my brain. That's essentially 21st century um, version of that. Uh, that that that's where we're headed. I think we are, and uh, unfortunately, you know, it's probably bullish for defense stocks over time because that does involve a lot of again this R and D spending, this advanced stuff. It's 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 a very different 
profile than uh, fighting insurgents, you know, or, or, or the kind of low-level war. So, yeah, but until the world gets safer, right? Yeah, and uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, that can happen. Lou, any last thoughts here on, you know, the defense universe before we send us all home? It's been a weird couple of years. We had the election year last year and concerns about that that I think were overblown and now fresh chaos. Um, This remains for me a sector that if you are very long term, and especially if you want dividends, because you have a lot of approaching 3% dividend yields, I I think it's still a safe place to go, but it, it is a long term investment and you do, there's tons of noise. You have to block out bullish and bearish. Lou, always love having you on the show. Can't wait to have you back on again soon. Pleasure to be here, Nick. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 